Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 11 with me. This is the second week of Missions Emphasis Week around here. Ron mentioned that already. We're calling it Counting the Cost of Church Planting. So last week, Clint talked about our future church planting plans in North Africa, far away. This week, it's my job, my privilege, to talk about plans now firming up for us for a church plant here in the Albuquerque area. Specifically, as I'll get to later, in Rio Rancho in early 2012. Let's start out by looking at Acts and looking at church planting in the book of Acts. I want to read some selections from Acts 11, 12, 13, and 14. So Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Saul, of course, has been converted. He was blind, but now he sees. And we pick up in the story with this mission. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, where all this started, back in Acts chapter 2. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Chapter 12 is basically all about persecution. James, the brother of Jesus, is killed. Peter is imprisoned. And then Herod is killed by God. Right after Herod dies, look at verse 24 of chapter 12. Nevertheless, despite all this persecution, the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived to Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God and the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now fast forward to the end, I'm sorry, to the end, yes, of chapter 13, verse 47. We're going to see an example of their ministry, which is really all through chapter 13. Here's just one example. Here's Paul preaching. So the Lord of God has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We sung so much about that theme this morning already. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, in sight of the devout women of high standing, And the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, 
Now, one more section, chapter 14, starting in verse 21. Paul's just been stoned in Lystra. When they preached the gospel to that city, and he made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They're making their way back through the path they came. Verse 22, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, back home where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. What you see in Acts 11 to 14 is a frenzy of missional activity. That's what I would call this, a frenzy of missional activity, a frenzy of sending and going and proclaiming and saving and then forming and appointing elders and and then going back through and discipling and training and then going through and communicating and rejoicing and giving thanks for all that God is doing. It's a frenzy of missional activity. I think there are three things we see in common in these church planting efforts in Acts 11 through 14. The same would be true if you looked at Acts chapter 2 and following, the church planting efforts there with the church of Jerusalem. And in the, the later chapters, Acts 16 and following with other church plants there. Three things. You see that church planting in Acts is tough. For one, it means sending off some of your best people. Imagine having a a Paul and Barnabas in your church and imagine losing them. That'd be hard. But the Holy Spirit said, I have plans for them. Send them on their way and they were glad to do it. Church planning is tough also because there is often, there is even usually serious opposition to it. Often that opposition is in the midst of wonderful fruit. The word of God is not bound. We saw that last Wednesday, just a few days ago, from Philippians 1. Remember, Paul's in prison, and what was that place in prison for him? But a fresh mission field, a new assignment from the Lord. You see that here in Acts 11 through 14. Opposition comes, and yet in the midst of the opposition, people are getting saved. Converts are being made. And sometimes the opposition means it squeezes them out into a new mission field, a new place of service for new people to hear. Church planting is tough, despite the fruit in the midst of it all. Secondly, church planting is the result of gospel seeding. That's what these church plants have all in common. The gospel, the results might be diverse. This one might have explosive growth, and this one might have more opposition, and and this one might just be a few converts before you're thrown out of the city and, and you hope to get back in later. But they all have this in common, the gospel. Jesus likened the gospel to a seed and the kingdom to a seed's growth. Can you think of those parables? One of them's in Mark 4. 
Listen to Mark 4, some examples of seed growth kingdom pictures that Jesus gives us. Mark 4, verse 26, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed in the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. And then in verse 30, he says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable should we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The gospel is like a seed, and... and those who do seeding, these preachers of the gospel, these proclaimers, these messengers of the gospel are like farmers. They're seeders. It makes sense to get seeders in as many places as possible. I haven't done any farming. I don't even do any kind of planting in the backyard. I, I just do whatever, well, whatever my wife tells me to do, whatever little I can do. That's what I do in the backyard. But I can imagine that if I were a farmer and I had to seed a whole field, you don't want to take a pile of seeds and dump them in one place and say, there, that ought to do it. I mean, each seed can be this own thing, this big thing. It can bear much fruit, a little seed. You want it scattered. You want cedars all over the place. You want planters as far out as you can go. You want this to spread for there to be a wide and broad crop. Now listen to John 12 where Jesus talks about a seed and uses a slightly different version of this this picture here, John 12, verse 24, he says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, verse 24, this picture of the seed going into the ground and dying. It's shedding its kernel so that it gives birth and is born to a crop. That's referring to Jesus' death, right? The context is very clear. If we looked at verse 23 and the verses previous to that, Jesus is talking about him going into the ground, him dying, and his crop being our redemption. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 25 is talking about someone else's death, right? The disciples have to spiritually die to themselves to be on this mission and to see fruit born from their lives. They have to go into the ground and die and not love their life, but instead to hate their life, to give it for Jesus' sake in order to bear fruit. Now, I don't think we're too far off in extrapolating that into church planting. There's nothing about church planting in John chapter 12, it's not explicit in Mark 4, the parable of the seed there. But we know where the story is going, right? We know that eventually the plan is gospel churches. Planting churches, not just believers, but churches. A church needs to die to itself to birth and plant other churches. It needs to go into the ground, take a bit of it off to the side, put it there, and then see if God will bless and it will spring forth. A church planting church is a church that knows the business of the church is gospel seeding. It's going to take sacrifice then. We're going to have to die to self. We're going to have to die to our loves, our wants, and our comforts. It's tough, but it's right. 
It's been the plan. That's the third thing. Church planting is, simply put, the plan. The Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations is really a commission to church plant. Because Jesus doesn't call us to make rogue disciples, disciples that are islands unto themselves. He calls us to make disciples that will commune together, partner together, connect together in a body, a church. That's the nature of Christianity. That's the nature of conversion. That's the nature of discipleship. It's assumed within the Great Commission that to do the Great Commission, these believers would find themselves in groups called churches. And that's certainly demonstrated throughout Acts. We could see it in chapter 2 and following. We already saw it in chapter 11 to 14. And again, we could see it in the later chapters of Acts if we took the time to look at it. You see people believing and baptized. And you see a church forming. You see Paul appointing elders. You see a church. And then that church is itself on mission, both in its local context and in sending those out to further away places. That's certainly what's demonstrated in Paul's epistles. He writes letters, doesn't he? He writes letters primarily to churches. Churches that were formed. Church is primarily formed out of those later chapters of Acts, 16 and following. You can go read about the church in Ephesus there and the church in Philippi there. But let me anticipate an objection. Maybe you'd say, okay, Ryan, that's first century. So great commission has to imply church planting in the first century because there aren't churches. Of course Paul is planting churches in the first century. There aren't any. They need to be churches there. But today we have churches. In 21st century America, we have churches. So can't we just be about the business of witnessing and proclaiming and making disciples with the existing churches? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer is no. Let me give you 10 reasons why we, DSC, should plant churches today in the U.S. Why plant today? First, church planting is biblical. Now, hopefully I've already shown that it is biblical But let me stress that it's still biblical. It's still biblical. You see, on the one hand, yes, Paul can say, Romans 15, that he preached the gospel where Christ is not yet named. He he had this ambition to go where Christ wasn't, to go to the unreached peoples, the unreached places. We believe as a church, yes, that God has purposes to not just save a bunch of people, but to Have us go to peoples. Revelation 5 tells us this, that in heaven there'll be a people which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. And that's why we're sending folks to North Africa to witness and plant churches there. There are peoples there who haven't heard. On the other hand, what you see in Acts is a frenzy of missional activity. So the Jerusalem church in the early chapters of Acts, for instance, grows and it spreads and it sends. Jesus said he will build his church, right? Well, I believe that in the U.S. he will build it not just through the never-ending expansion of existing churches, building program after building program, but I believe that in the U.S. he will build it also through existing churches like ours, planting new churches. We are fulfilling what he said he would do, what he promised he would do. I 
will build my church. The early church had a self-conscious identity, both of being sent and of sending. DSC needs to be a church both that is sent and is sending. So we send to where he is not yet named, like North Africa. And we spread the gospel in our own personal witnesses, our own spheres of influence here in Albuquerque. Yes, amen. And we plant, here's how I'd put it, nearby outposts for the gospel just outside our own backyard. That's how I would describe church planting for us. Planting nearby outposts for the gospel just outside our own backyard. All of that feels biblical to me. If Paul were here and hearing of these plans, I think he would say, yeah, that's it. I don't think he'd say, dummy, there are enough churches here. Move on, go someplace else. What you see in Acts is, yes, sending to faraway places, But you keep reaching Jerusalem. You keep planting in Judea. It's a frenzy of missional activity. Church planting is still biblical. Secondly, church planting is a uniquely effective means of reaching the lost. New churches in general are simply more concerned for the lost and more effective in reaching the lost than existing churches. Let me give you some stats. One denomination in the U.S. recently found that 80% of its converts came to Christ in a church that's less than two years old. Another stat. On average, as many as half of those in a church two years or younger are what we call unreached. I'm sorry, unchurched. They haven't been in a church. They haven't grown up in a church. They've been now people in a church who weren't previously in a church. Another stat, it's a statistical fact that new churches have three times as much conversion growth as opposed to transfer growth. They didn't come from a new church. They got forgiven, redeemed, saved. In that church, new churches have three times as much conversion growth than churches like ours, which are older than 15 years old. Religious sociologists are not even sure why this is the case. One possibility is that they're is a suspicion of established religion in our culture. And so unbelievers are are more eager to go to something that is fresh and new and doesn't have tradition nailed down to the two-by-fours of that church. Another possibility is just that new churches in general are hungry, hungry for new people to come, hungry for new people to get saved, in part for their own survival. I pastored a church in Denver that was small. It was anywhere from 40 to 75 people, depending on which family was moving town or moving into town. I mean, a family of six. You've got 70 people in the church, and a family with four kids leaves. You just lost 10% of your church. It's like, oh. Okay, so I know about that survival thing. I know about churches hungry, yes, for souls on a spiritual level, but practically speaking, sometimes smaller churches, church plants, are hungry for growth so that they can stay open, so that they can survive, so that they can keep a a full-time pastor. But regardless of why, it's nevertheless true that new churches reach people that established churches can't reach. And the opposite's true as well. For some people... 
it will be an established church that is more acceptable to them, more interesting to them, more safe for them. Maybe they feel like, you know, if it's been around for 15 years and hasn't gone under and the IRS hasn't come and, you know, the cops haven't come, then it must be at least all right. Something new, maybe that's not for them. Okay, we need both. We need new and we need existing churches. Third, church planting is needed even in America. I want to take some time on this point because there's so much information available to us about this and it's so easily misunderstood. America is not oversaturated with churches. There used to be many more churches in the U.S. than there are today. For a whole century, church numbers have been on a steady decline. For instance... In 1900, there were 27 churches per 10,000 people in the U.S. In 1950, there were 17 churches per 10,000 people in the U.S. 27 to 17 and 15 years per 10,000 people. In 2000, there were 10 churches per 10,000 people in the U.S. So if you're, you're keeping track of this, that means in 100 years, there was more than a 66% decline of churches in the U.S. Why is that? Well, in part because 3,500 to 4,000, depending on the year, whether it's a good year or a bad year, 3,500 to 4,000 churches in the U.S. closed their doors for good. For decades, church planting efforts weren't coming close to the number of churches that close. And so there's, there's a yearly net loss of churches. I'll give you one example. In 2007, only 1,500 churches were planted. And over 3,500 churches closed their, jo- their doors. Now, enter the megachurch movement. If you know anything about what I'm talking about here, you've read any kind of stats on this sort of thing, you might be thinking, okay, there are less churches, but churches are bigger now than they used to be. Well, there are a lot of mega churches. A mega church is any church that's over 2,000. Yeah, there have always been churches over 2,000, but in the 80s and 90s and today, there have been many more mega churches than ever. So if you're tempted to say, Ryan, yes, less churches in the U.S. today, that doesn't mean necessarily less people are going to church because you have to factor in these giant mega churches. Well, two things in response to that. Number one, there are less people attending church these days than there used to be. Secondly, I for one don't want to give in to the mega church movement as the new normal. There have always been churches that are bigger than 2,000, starting with the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. Spurgeon pastored a very large church. I have friends today that pastor mega churches. There's a difference, though, between a typical mega church and one that's just numerically a mega church. I, for one, want to see DSC plant more local churches so that there isn't a propagating of the megachurch movement as the norm in this country. And I stress as the norm, not like it's always bad, but if that's the norm, if there's a continued feast or famine, the big get bigger, the small get smaller until the small eventually can't afford a pastor, can't afford a building, and then they go under. I don't think that's a healthy scenario. We need big and small. We need rural and urban 
We need this church and that church. We need diversity. Now, according to Ed Stetzer's new book, finally, as of 2009, there has been a shift and we are now actually planting more churches in the U.S. than the 3,500 or so that close their doors every year. That is a huge shift. It's almost an unbelievable one to someone who's been watching this trend, like I have, for more than a decade. It's almost unbelievable because for so long, in the, even the early 2000s, we were planting about half as many as were closing their doors every year. So that's great news if we're planting now a little bit more than are actually closing. But that shouldn't allow us to coast. We've got a lot of making up to do, don't we? We have a century, we have decades and decades of less churches and less churches and less churches. So, so here's a stat that you can hopefully get your arms around about why we need more churches even here in the Albuquerque area. Even today, at least as of 2009, get this, if every church were packed in the U.S., every seat was taken in three services, this church only has two, right? We have two for space reasons. Can't all get in this room with one service. We have two. So imagine every church in America has three services. And imagine it's packed. This is, I don't know, 70% packed or so. Imagine it's packed. Every seat's taken. You getting this? Every church in America, three services, every seat is taken. How many Americans are still left without a seat? You think any? You think we would cover the U.S. population if every church were packed for three services? Nope. 94 million would be without a seat. 94 million. One third of the U.S. would still be without a seat. Now, don't worry, we're not very close to this happening, right? We're not very close to all of U.S., you know, turning themselves into God and falling at the feet of Jesus and joining us in worship. But, but that tells us something about the fact that if we're really praying for revival, if we're praying for great things, we don't have enough seats here. Uh, we need more churches in this country. And let's remember, too, that the goal is not simply a lot of churches, period, but a lot of good churches, right? I mean, of those seats in America, those churches here in the U.S., there's a lot of wacky stuff there, right? We don't just want more churches. We want more good churches. We want churches that are God-centered. We want churches that are radically biblical. We want churches that, just like happened in the newcomer's reception after the first service, they said, what's church discipline? And I told them, I told newcomers about church discipline at Desert Springs Church. I want a church, more churches in, in Albuquerque that that have the guts to sing that we're worthless worms before a holy God. The amazing thing is not that he loves us so much, it's that he loves us who are sinners this much. Not because we're lovely, not because we're worth it. I want churches in America, more churches in America, who will preach God's word loudly and unashamedly and will... Do what it says, even when that looks weird or different. We need 
more good churches. Fourth, church planting is needed in our town. New Mexico is less church than the national average, not more. Specifically, Rio Rancho, where we plan to plant, is less church even than the average of the state. It needs more good churches. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. Also, we, Desert Springs, are increasingly having people travel further and further distances to come to DSE. And we're thrilled that you're willing to drive 30 minutes or 45 minutes or 60 minutes to come here and worship with us and partner with us in ministry. But there is something you might be missing out on in not having a church closer to your home, closer to your job, and closer to your everyday life. And it's that when you get to talk to people about the gospel, when you get to invite them to church, you may actually say, come to my church, Ah, but it's 45 minutes away or it's a half hour away. We want more outposts of gospel ministry in this community and all over this world. Our town needs more good churches. Fifth, church planning will help DSC be more missional in other ways. Being a church planting church will foster more of a missional mindset all around for those who stay, for those who are here. In other words, regular, excited talk about church planting for the sake of spreading the mission, spreading the gospel in this world will help remind us and excite us about the spread of the mission in our own sphere of influences. It will not detract from the passion of our local everyday personal witness. It will help motivate, it'll help remind, it'll help keep before us this mission. I don't think planting in North Africa and planting in Rio Rancho waters down my mission on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. I think it keeps reminding me of that mission on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Sixth, Church planting is in some ways an attempt at DSC growing without growing. Think of this as an alternative building fund. Now, a few years ago, we had at least the possibility before us of having to do a phase two. We, we had two packed services. We had people sitting on the floor in the back. We had people who would drive into the parking lot, couldn't find a spot. They'd go home, tell me later that they listened to the sermon online, and I would say, look, that's not an equal alternative. You know, park far away. I don't care where you park. You've got to park and come in. You can't, you can't leave because you can't find a spot. Uh, park in my office if you need to. I don't care. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, so people were leaving. Uh, it was packed. We had three services, and so we were forced with this unlikable thing of having to do a phase two. Our elders were not happy about it. I wasn't thrilled about it. Uh, I've said before, if I can die a lifelong pastor who never went through a building program, I'd be a happy man. I've heard some horror stories, and I'd just rather stay out of that if I can. Um, So this is an attempt at growing without growing. Now, God could easily bless, and that's not the case. We can't avoid maybe a phase two. I don't know. We have space over there. That phase, that that dirt lot over there is purposefully purchased for the future possibility of a phase two. We may never do that. Maybe we can keep up with growth by planting and sending and planting and sending. 
or maybe not, but the point is we should be on the lookout for spreading his kingdom regardless of what it looks like. That's the seventh point. Church planting fosters a broad-minded kingdom mentality. Even if it won't keep us from growing numerically or having to do a phase two, it's a mindset that will help us fight against any personal kingdom building here. Yes, we believe in the priority of the local church. And yes, we're thankful for what God is doing here. We are a local church and we think God's doing some unique things here. But, but. We want to have a broad-minded kingdom mentality, not to think that we're the only ones who've been doing it right. In fact, that's so far from the truth already, apart from DSC ever doing a church plant. There are many churches in town that we love and partner with, fellowship with, cheer on, pray for. We do things together. You know these men. You know these churches. You know the churches that I would recommend to you if you weren't here at Desert Springs. These guys preach for us here because we're not in competition. We partner together. We love them. We pray for them. And and 10 years from now, I'm hoping and praying that we have a sister church in Rio Rancho that's one of these partner churches. Eighth, church planting puts to use a growing number of equipped leaders and potential leaders at Desert Springs. Imagine your business duplicating itself and what that would mean for job advancement. Businesses don't do this, but imagine your business decides to take a chunk of its business and then put it over here and for that little chunk to be its own business, for that to flourish. As that happens, a lot of times what happens is middle management in the big business, the original business, comes over here and would be upper level leadership in this smaller environment, right? Well, the same is true in church planting. We at Desert Springs, in some ways, have a growing top heaviness. We have a lot of guys who could do more than they're doing. We have a lot of guys that are getting equipped well beyond what their community group offers them in service to their church. We send guys off to seminary, right? We have guys in the mission field. We have men who've been on staff at this church that are now part of other churches and full-time ministry in this city. God's doing some neat things here. We frequently have more people ready for serious ministry than we have the opportunities for them to do that in. So church planning is a great thing, a great thing for people to step it up, take it to the next level. Church planting really forces people to go outside their box and meet needs and do things they wouldn't otherwise have done. Here in a big church, if you call this big, it's bigger than a church plant would be for sure. We're big enough that you can think, well, I don't know who does that. I don't have to worry about it. I got my niche. I got my thing. Well, in a church plant, it's more of an all-hands-on-deck kind of scenario. And as we send off some of our Pauls and Barnabases, guess what? We'll have more places to put key leaders who were being underutilized here in serious leadership positions. Ninth, God is doing something special with church planting in the U.S. these days. I wish I could take 20 minutes on this point right here and tell you about it, but God is doing something special with church planting 
in the U.S. these days. Not just with Acts 29, an organization that we plan to partner with, and I'll tell you more about next week. Not just with Acts 29, but in the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, Presbyterian Church in America, with Anglicans, the EV Free. Church planting is exploding in this country, praise God. Now, Ray Ortland, in his book on revival, says that all of us should have a revival radar going at all times. We should be looking for what God is doing. He says we should be looking for what God is doing that's unique and special and big, and we should get behind it. I think we should get behind church planting, folks. And tenth, as a former church plant, DSC should be pro-planting. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker before. As a former fetus, I'm pro-life. That's pretty good logic. Well, as a former ecclesiastical fetus, Desert Springs Church, we should be pro-planting. We should be pro-church plants. We should want to see this replicated elsewhere. If you like what's going on here, and not even like completely, But if you generally like what's going on here, if you generally like our story, if you generally like our distinctives and you want to see that elsewhere, we should be a church that's interested not just in inwardly focused health and growth, but we should be outwardly looking to replicate these things. We should have a special place in our hearts for planting. Every single one of you has been in a church that was at one time a church plant. It would be a silly exercise for me to say, raise your hand if you got saved and started going to a church that was once a church plant. They all were. Some weren't very good church plants. Some were church splits. But they were church plants. They were birthed at some point. This church was birthed some 20 years ago. I think it's time for us to have a baby. Let me get to some specifics as we wrap this up. Church planting plans. Why, what, when, who, and how. The why, we've already covered that. Ten reasons. Moving on. Two. Number, the, the, the second one is what. What will this mean for us? What will it look like? Well, we're not talking about DSC doing a church plant, a one-off knockoff of DSC. We're talking about DSC becoming a church planting church. We're talking about this being in addition to our DNA code. This is who we are. We're going to be a church planting church, both far away and here. It won't mean that we duplicate DSC in every way. It won't be DSC Junior. It won't be DSC West. It'll just be a church that we, yes, are a part of seeing it born and it grow. And then it's on its own. It's off to college. It's married. And we're, we're in relation with it, right? It's a sister church like other churches in town And this church will, like other churches in town, share some of those DNA things that we find precious around here. Eldership and membership and church discipline and expositional preaching and the the same doctrinal foundations. When? Early 2012, I already said that. Now, here's where I should probably anticipate an objection. By the way, I've already anticipated 
more than 10 objections in what I've said, even though I haven't begun with, here's your objection, here's my response. But let me do that with this one. You might object thinking, surely now is not the time, if ever. I mean, we're in a recession. Uh, We had staff layoffs in the last year because we weren't meeting our operating budget. And now we're talking about massive, radical plans for the church planting efforts in North Africa. We're talking about putting ourselves, putting two or four uh, people on the field in North Africa to be missionaries. Surely this is not the time. I would say to that, there is always a better time to do something radical for Jesus, right? There's always a better time than right now for you to give more, for you to do more, or for you to take on more. Think back to before you had kids, right? And you had that talk, husband and wife together, should we try? And maybe if you're like me, you said, I can't afford it. I can't afford a kid. I remember when we first started having a kid, we didn't have insurance, Three out of our four kids, I was, I was unemployed during three out of the four pregnancies. You can't afford to have kids, right? You're thinking, oh boy, why'd we do this? You know? Is it ever time, humanly speaking, financially speaking, to have kids or to do this thing? No, but you do it anyway. You trust God and look, it turned out, right? It turned out. William Carey said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Now's the time that we do something radical for Jesus. That's what we see in Acts. We see a frenzy of missional activity. And I want to see that replicated here in our church. The who of church planting Carlos Griego, our young adults pastor, will be the church planting pastor. He's been on staff at Desert Springs for a number of years. He was converted here. His first time here, he showed up hungover. That's a good DSC conversion story. He's been an elder candidate during the last year, and his responsibility specifically over the well, the young adult ministry, is perfect as a stepping stone for church planting because he does weekly preaching, he does counseling, he leads a team of leaders within that ministry. It's like a mini church within our church. It's great. And maybe most importantly for Carlos to be our church planting pastor, this guy's heart beats church planting. If we weren't behind him, if we weren't doing this with him, he eventually would be saying, thanks, it's been great, i got to go plant a church. He thinks that's what God's called him to do, and, and he has helped us as a church think through this, prepare for this, get excited about this as a, a leadership, and we want to pass that blessing on to you now and in the years to come. So Carlos will go as the church planting pastor. It will have eldership, however that looks. And at least 40 adults will also go from DSC as a church planting team. So some of you, maybe especially on the west side, will think about maybe whether God is leading you to do something. That's a sacrifice even. And go and be a part of something that's risky and bold and new and hard. How? 
how will we do all this as a church? Not just those who will go, but how? Well, one, let's start getting excited. Let's start fanning the flame of this passion of who we are and what we're becoming as a church. I think this is a good next step for us in growth as a church. I, I personally, I don't think I've ever been this excited about being here at Desert Springs. God's doing fresh things. We're not coasting. I hate coasting. I'm glad we're not coasting. God's doing new and special things, things that are uniquely from him, things that must be from him. He's given us in our leadership a wonderful sense of unity and joy about these things that can't be faked, that can't be forced. It is sometimes rare, sad to say, Get excited with us about this thing. I'm praying that your response would not just be passive or that it passes the test for you where you say, I won't complain. I guess that passes muster enough for for me to, to be quiet. But that you would just feel a sense of yes within you. This would feel biblical and kingdom oriented down in your toes. Pray. Pray before it happens. Pray much. Pray often. Pray for Carlos. Pray for the team, the planting team that goes. And give. Church planting plans, as Clint talked about last week, over the next 10 years, both in North Africa and planting here in the Albuquerque area, means that we'll need 2.5 million over those 10 years. That's multiple church plants here in Albuquerque. That's multiple missionary families on the ground in North Africa. We need 2.5 over 10 million. And it is so doable. It is so doable. You ready to, how hear, ready to hear how doable this is? Starting in 2011, if 150 families or individuals will give just a dollar a day more than you're currently giving, we'll be on our way for a plan to see this financially met. It's a dollar a day more. Now, you have to give more than you're currently giving. If you rob Peter to pay Paul, you say, well, I give you know, this much to the church already. Well, I'll just move some of this over to here, and I'll call it church planting money. That doesn't help us. Church planting needs to happen while Desert Springs still exists, right? There's no church planting if there's no Desert Springs. So we've got to keep Desert Springs going. And we need to fund this. And this is in addition to the 10% that we already give to the missions, things like Guatemala and Mexico and the reservations and other local ministries that we support. So... Some of you will leave this place and you'll go and you'll pray about that. You'll think about that. You'll look at budget. Some of you are ready to sign up today. Some of you are ready to say, all right, a dollar a day. Some of you can say, I can do so much more than that. I mean, really? Well, let me make up for a family or two that isn't able to give even a dollar a day. Maybe someone will quit their gym membership to the glory of God and lift weights in the hot garage. Imagine that suffering. That would... I mean, next to hell, that would, that's real suffering there. But, oh, I've had a gym membership too. Now I just don't work out. So, there's always that option too. But maybe you'll go home and you'll look at your budget and you'll say, okay, can we cancel Netflix? Can we get rid of the 500 channels and just cut down to 80 or something? 
Um, I know. What? Are you kidding? The speed channel will be cut. I know. I don't have it either. And I'm, <laughs> it's tough. Um, I'm with you. I, I am a materialistic American who likes stuff and likes comforts. I'm one of you. I'm so one of you. And, and I think we need to be strategic and wise and thoughtful and sacrificial about our current giving and over and above that, some giving to church planting happening both in North Africa and here in Albuquerque for the glory of God.